Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, we take a brief break from the book of Romans and turn to the book of Joel as we look at four ways that God is glorified and brings his purposes through calamity. You can join us by turning to Joel chapter 2 as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord. chapter 2 in just a moment. Uh, Let me give just a little bit of background here uh, to the book. In this man's day, whom God called as a prophet, uh, God had sent a national catastrophe. Uh, The Lord had sent locusts upon the land, which had then resulted in a famine. People looked out on the landscape and everything was devastated. God then came to a man named Joel, gave him a message and told him to go preach it and record it. To bring, to bring his people to understand and think rightly about what was happening. To understand why the Lord had done these things and then to bring them that they would respond rightly. They would be faithful in the midst of these things. So we're going to pick up in chapter two in just a moment. But before we do, uh, kind of look at chapter one, verse four there for a second. There's just a brief dim, uh, brief explanation there of the locusts that had swept through and how they had devastated everything. If you jump over to verse 14 of chapter one. Um, notice a, a, a couple sentences here that are repeated throughout the book. When something is repeated in the Bible, that's a way of circling it, putting an exclamation point to show part of the theme that's here. So this is repeated. And so notice what it says there. Consecrate a fast, proclaim, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day for the day of the Lord is near and it will come about as destruction from the Almighty. Well, let's pick up in chapter two and read uh, the first 27 verses and then we'll pray. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness as the dawn is spread over the mountains. So there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. A fire consumes before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them and nothing at all escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses so they run. He's describing the locust here again, but also a foreshadowing looking forward to judgment to come. Verse five, with a noise as of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle. Before them, the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. They run Like mighty men, they climb the wall like soldiers and they each march in line, nor do they deviate from their paths. 
They do not crowd each other. They march everyone in his path. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. Before them, the earth quakes. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. One just pause there is that in the book of Revelation, as it is being described, coming wrath in the days to come, There is a passage that looks back to Joel um, as a foreshadowing of future wrath. Verse 11, the Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great. For strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome and who can endure it? Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. And with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber saying, leave your honeymoon. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, where is their God? Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, behold, I am going to send you grain new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. But I will remove the northern army far from you, and I will drive it into a parched and desolate land, and its vanguard into the eastern sea, and its rear guard into the western sea, and its stench will arise, and its foul smell will come up, for it has done great things. Do not fear, O land." Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beast of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green, for the tree has borne its fruit, the fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication, and he has poured down for you the rain, the early and latter rain as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain and the vats will overflow with the new wine and oil. Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The creeping locust, the stripping locust and the gnawing locust, the great army which I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dwelt wondrously with you, then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God. And there is no other. And my people will never be put to shame. Let's pray. 
Merciful Father, I ask for the grace to be able to explain your word, represent your word, not only this passage, but all of your truths in, in a way that's faithful. And I, I pray, God, that we will see your truths. And I pray for all of us, O oh God, that in light of circumstances going on in our land across the world, O oh God, that we will think rightly, we will worship and respond rightly. Please, O oh God, we pray, Glorify your name in this overall way. We are completely confident that you are, but we're asking, oh God, that in a major way, and we are asking that we would get to be a part of it. We're asking, oh God, that our lives would count, that we would get to be effective and useful in the magnifying of your name as souls run to Christ for refuge. So please, oh God, we pray, accomplish that. Help us right now to think rightly, Worship rightly, draw us near, give us grace, O God. We ask these things through Christ. Amen. All right. My intention uh, all week was simply to briefly address the issues of the virus going on in the world and such, and then just continue on in our study in Romans. For one, like many of you, quite frankly, I'm tired of hearing and talking about it and all of these things, as I know many of you are as well. And I just love our study through Romans. This is our normal diet. But there are, there are, there are about three things that led me to change my mind this week and to say, I think we ought to take a Sunday to biblically think through these circumstances so that we will think rightly and be prepared to respond rightly. Uh, first, um, I did spend a, a pretty good chunk of the week um, answering phone calls, having conversations with folks inside and outside the, the, the church who are asking questions. Some of those questions, uh, you, if you've been a believer for 20 years, questions you've already wrestled with, but also understand we are all the time being evangelistic. We are all the time discipling newer believers and none of us has thought through every issue that we need to. And so it showed me that there is a, there is a need to think biblically think through these things. Secondly, the world is freaking out. And when the world is freaking out, there comes need and opportunity. When a calamity hits, one of the things that we're going to look at today is that the Lord is using it to open eyes. Over and over again, we see this in scripture. God is using this to wake people out of spiritual stupor and it creates an opportunity for souls to see for the first time. It is an opportunity intended by God for the work of the gospel. And we need to be ready. These kinds of opportunities can sometimes be short and we could miss it if we were not poised and ready. And when I, when I say opportunity, please, please don't hear that in an insensitive kind of way, like with an ulterior kind of motive, like maybe a toilet paper salesman is thinking about the money he could make right now. This is not what I mean by opportunity. What I mean by opportunity is souls really are heading to an eternal destination of the wrath of God but there is a gospel that will save and there are rare opportunities when in massive ways, people are thinking more about reality and keeping their eyes away from television more. And so we want to be ready. For the sake of souls, there are times for believers to be even uncharacteristically 
vocal. And vocal about the gospel. Vocal about the gospel and not necessarily about all of our opinions and predictions about what will happen. People will only listen to so much of what we have to say. We sometimes call that like leadership points or our influence points that we have. If we just never stop talking, there comes a point when people stop listening. If we use up all of our words that people are willing to hear in order to talk about whatever wild predictions or opinions we have on the matter, then there will be little left for the gospel. There are tons and tons of uncertainties, but we have a lot of certainties. And we need to be adamant in speaking the message of the gospel. Thirdly, we see the precedent in scripture that when calamity strikes, the people of God are to tell the world what is actually going on. We have a responsibility to speak on behalf of God. And I do not say that phrase lightly. We have a responsibility to speak on behalf of God, not in new revelation that we're being given. We've already been given revelation. God has already covered these things. And so when Martin Luther and John Calvin lived through the Black Plague, they had words to speak. When C.H. Spurgeon lived through cholera, he had words to speak. When C.S. Lewis lived in the days of the the, uh, initial fears of the atomic bomb, he had words to speak not as new revelation, but as the word of God that is eternal and will never fade away. We have a similar responsibility and our greatest responsibility that we have, quite frankly, parents, is towards our children to help them understand how to biblically think through all of these things. So if you are like me and would really just like to move on and study Romans, (laughs) please hear this. There are times we don't have a choice. There are times where in the providence of God, matters are thrust in our face and we will either be faithful or not. And so what I want to try to do this morning is to try to help us think, biblically think through the pertinent matters and be faithful. And here is one of those um, days where we often talk about the difference between preaching opinion and preaching the word of God. I got a lot of opinions. It is my goal not to share a single one of them, but to share only the black and white truths of the living word of the living God. Our job as the church is not to make predictions as to what we believe will happen. Our job is the word. So how should we as the people of God think through these things? And how should we be responding? I'm going to address three areas uh, that... To be faithful, we need to think about rightly and then respond to God rightly in. The first one will take the most of our time and then we'll move to some application and how to respond. The first one is this, what role does God play in this? In other words, is this from God? And then if it is from God, then is it judgment? What is God's connection to this? Well, as we read Joel here, notice this truth. The calamity that came in Joel's day, of course, didn't take God by surprise. Surely nobody is in danger of thinking that here. But is this something that God simply knew was going to happen, but decided not to stop? Is that the role that he plays in the world? 
Is it that of watching to see what's going to happen? Is, is God's role in this world that of knowing what's going to happen and occasionally he decides to step in and address things? Or is his sovereignty bigger than that? Well, look at verse 11 of chapter two and notice what is said there. The Lord utters his voice before his army. He calls the army of locusts his army. Surely his camp is very great. For strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and awesome. The unmistakable truth is that God sent the calamity in Joel's day. It did not just happen in the course of things playing out in this world detached from God. God is not on his throne watching. God is acting. God is ordaining. And, and lest we think, well, maybe, maybe it's that God, you know, just lets things play out, but he's just sort of occasionally stepping in and altering things when they, when they get off course and such. Maybe it's just some issues that he's doing. Of course, we know God could stop things, but he's mostly letting things play out. But that's not how God reveals himself to us in scripture. God shows us very clearly how the world is spinning. Nothing happens outside of his ultimate secret will and nothing happens that he has not in some way orchestrated. Now it is how things are orchestrated that leave us breathless in wonder. That God is using even natural means. God is using even the storms and the winds that blow, even the locust. God is using even angels and demons. It leaves us astounded. But there is nothing that happens that God has not in some way been involved in orchestrating and directing. Amos 3, 6, which is the, uh, the minor prophet right after the book of Joel. If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? In Isaiah chapter 45, I'm going to read a couple places to you. Isaiah 45, starting in verse five, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you though you have not known me. That men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these. It's actually a theme through the book of Isaiah. It's one of the major truths that is taught through Isaiah. In the next chapter, chapter 46, starting in verse 9, the Lord says, remember the former things long past for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. He then goes on to describe how he was bringing an army one day in the future against the people of Israel. Psalm 115, three, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. In second Corinthians, we learn of a time that Paul had the thorn in the flesh. You remember this? A messenger of Satan. Satan was tormenting Paul. He prays to the Lord and asks for it to be removed. And God responds, I'm not going to remove it because I have purposes in this. 
the way that God brings about his orchestrated purposes leave us baffled, but he is sovereign. We are not, and we are more fragile than we have ever imagined. But if this is the case, if God is working all things, even calamity, then why does he do it? Why would God orchestrate tragedies? Well, the ultimate answer, the great answer that flies as the banner over every other specific way that we'll talk about. The ultimate answer is that God does absolutely every single thing that he does to somehow along the way and ultimately at the end glorify his name. God is working to prepare praise for himself. God is working to demonstrate his power, his sovereignty, his might, his beauty, his grace, so that along the way and at the end, angels and men will fall down in wonder. God is working in certain ways that along the way, there are a lot of angels worshiping. There are a lot of humans who come to see his majesty. We fall on our faces and weep for the grace that we've been given, but he is ultimately working so that at the end, all will see his glory and fall down and worship him. We speak of this often. So the places in the Bible that we could look to for this are just so many, we, we could not even mention them all. All throughout the Bible, God says things like, I delivered you out of Egypt so that you would worship my name. I gave you my law so that you would honor me. I sent judgment to you, he says over and over in the prophets to wake you up so that you would come humble yourself, repent and give me glory. And at every turn, God is specifically telling mankind, I didn't do this because you deserve to be blessed. I didn't do this because you're worthy. I didn't save you because you're the superior beings of the cosmos and everything really should work out for your great happiness. Over and over again, he specifically says, this is not why I have done this. I give grace to you who deserve hell so that you would be overwhelmed by my mercy. And being overwhelmed by my mercy, you would come and worship with great gratitude. God is working all things so that angels and men, so that all things will see his glory. So if that's the case, then how does calamity glorify God? Well, as we wor would work through the entire Bible, we could come up with a long list. Let me mention four quick ways that God glorifies his name and accomplishes his purposes in calamity. First one we'll mention, God declares again and again in the prophets that he sends calamity for this ultimate precious gift to wake souls up. This comes up throughout the book of Joel, but it, it's, it's a theme through all of the prophets. It's, it's major in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and it's one of the main themes of the book of Ezekiel. It comes up over and over again in Ezekiel. God sends these things. It is intended to bring souls to their knees, to feel their desperation, to feel their fragility. That could have been the one truth of the whole sermon today. We are way more fragile than we think we are. 
God brings eyes to see our fragility, our desperation, to think soberly about reality and then run to Christ. It is a gracious gift from God every time he wakes people up out of spiritual stupors. Calamities, they wake souls out of the spiritual haze. Awake for the first time. Now that's the first part I'm mentioning. We are gonna get to the fact that we as believers can drift into spiritual stupors as well. But first we're starting with the lost of the world. But it's also not just national or global calamities. God saves people using cancer every single day. God saves people in prison every single day. Calamity has a way of sobering us, waking us out of that drunken stupor of earthly stupidity to make us think that the car you drive in baseball actually stinking matters. One time a U.S. senator said, to be a good senator, you have to be like a good football coach, both smart and dumb. You have to be smart enough to see and implement strategies to win but also dumb enough to think that it actually matters. Our lives are absolutely filled, absolutely filled with things that are stealing our time, our attention, our devotion. And calamity has a way of waking us up to that, causing us to see what actually matters causing us to see eternity. Many of you know the story. A woman who was saved and baptized here at this church knew the gospel for years but disregarded it until she was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And then suddenly, eternal matters mattered. And she turned to Christ and even after several years after that moment and in a time where she was experiencing still a great deal of pain and in great difficulty, she said, I thank God that he gave me cancer because otherwise I'd still be going to hell. Every calamity is a gift from God in that it is a wake up call from heaven. And the call says, humble yourself before the living God, repent and come to Christ. Secondly, God glorifies himself in calamity because Christ is purifying his church. These kinds of events strengthen us quickly because we are forced to, we're forced to deal with things that we maybe haven't dealt with. You know, so it's the reality. Every Christian should think about death, but that doesn't mean that we do just because we should. And so when there is a fear of an atomic bomb, guess what? Everybody's thinking about death. Everyone is more in tune with eternal things. Jesus is able to do a widespread purifying of his people in a short amount of time. And that is a gift. So like Ephesians 5 uh, says that husbands, as they lead their wives, they are to lead their wives into holiness, into uh, further being purified. Well, we are to do that because we're imitating Jesus who is at work in his bride at work in his bride to make his people holy. We were forgiven of our sins at the moment of conversion, at the moment of justification, but Jesus is at work in an ongoing way to holify. That's not an actual word. The biblical word is sanctify. Romans 6, the further purifying of his people. Jesus wants a holy church. 
Jesus works for a holy church. Jesus sends you and I trials to make us holy. And there are times where from his throne of heaven, Jesus sends calamity in order to bring about the purifying of his people. Because listen, unbelievers aren't the only ones to drift into spiritual stupors. So we, the people of God, can. Our salt can become tasteless. And we regularly need awakened. We regularly need refreshed. If we, by the way, if we didn't, we wouldn't need the ongoing fellowship of the church and such. Part of why we need this is the ongoing stirring of our souls. We need awakened. We need tested. And there are ways that times like this, situations like this, test us in unique ways. Every hardship has its own unique way that we will be forced to make faith-filled decisions or not. Do selfless acts or not. If a locust-induced famine were to hit, like in the book of Joel, would you share your food with your neighbor? If an economic hardship were to hit, would you still give and be generous? Those are tests of faith. And let's be frank and sober. I don't say this with an intention to have a a mean-spirited look at the world or anything, but just trying to be as sober as we can. The American church is soft. We are learning what Jesus warned. Prosperity comes with danger. Prosperity has a danger. Listen, America is a dangerous place to raise children. The irony is, for a hundred years as believers have risen up within the church to go to dangerous places with the gospel, and there have been those, even from within their own churches, who have tried to talk them out of it, saying things like, but what about your kids? But what about your children? Here's the irony. This is a dangerous place to raise children. Prosperity has an incredible danger. Jesus said it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. We are seeing this. There is a danger and it is a gift of God for him to send testing to his people to strengthen us. Thirdly, In calamity, God is at work to give grace to his people who are taken home in glory. This one is kind of hard for us sometimes, so we got to think biblically. We got to think like Paul in Philippians. Paul in Philippians, if you remember that time he's in prison, theme of the letter is to rejoice. But in chapter one, he says uh, he's not sure if he was going to die or if he was going to be released. And if you remember, he said, I'd love to get to go home now. That's where I want to be. If I stay here, I know that there's profitable work that I can do. So I desire that. But man, that is where I want to be. This is the biblical perspective. If we could see heaven right now, we would want to be there. If we got an appetizer of it, we would want it as the main course. Heaven is better than here. I know, deep truths from the pastor. Heaven is better than here. But even when we don't see that, God is still at work giving grace when he brings his people home in calamities. 
He actually says that it is a precious gift. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones, Scripture says. And so understand that in calamities, God will bring some of his people home. And bringing them home is not an act of judgment. It is an act of grace. But fourthly, God is working in calamity by sending small judgments to the world. And he does so regularly. So yes, this is another big thing that God is doing in calamity. He is sending judgment. And so after certain major events happen, after 9-11, after Hurricane Katrina, after the tsunami in Burma, a lot of times there is this question asked, is this judgment? Is this judgment? Well, the Bible leads us to conclude that any time there are difficult hardships that come, there is a way, there at least at one level, there is judgment that is happening. It's not the judgment. They are small acts of judgment. If you remember in Romans 1, we saw that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It is happening in an ongoing way by regular things that come. They are small acts that call our attention to the great day to come. Small judgments that cause us to think of the great judgment. That actually comes up over and over in Joel. The locusts were a wake-up call. They were for purifying. And they were an act of judgment on a nation who was disregarding the Lord. And he again and again points to the small judgment to say the day of the Lord, the great day of the Lord is one day coming. In verse one of the chapter two, he says, let the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. Judgment has come, but the judgment is yet to come where all souls will stand before the Lord. Now, just a second ago, I mentioned um, God's judgment on a nation living in rebellion, but don't take that to mean that every nation gets proportional prosperity or reigns or economic uh, flourishing based on their obedience to God proportionally. No, that's not how it works now. The same is with individuals. The Bible teaches over and over again. That's not a reality because even in David's day, for instance, David led the nation to a time of obedience that was greater than other times. But even in David's day, there were small acts of judgment that God sent in his infinite wisdom, knowing what souls need. So, yes, it is the case. The Bible shows it is the case that sometimes a nation so angers God that he is unwilling to wait any longer and he will send judgment. But no, we cannot conclude that every time something happens that that's necessarily what is happening. The same with individuals. Yes, it is the case in the book of Acts that Herod was stricken with a devastating and painful judgment from God because of his particular wickedness. But at the same time, Job the righteous man was stricken precisely because he was righteous and godly. So it's not our job to be going around looking at people's life and going, you're under judgment or you're not, or that's not our job. In everything that happens, we are to soberly humble ourselves and try to learn from the word, whatever it is we are supposed to, to learn, regardless of where we are spiritually 
we are to respond with repentance. Even if you are, the, if even John the Baptist were still on the earth, still in calamity, what does the Lord want him to do? Humble yourself before the Lord. Turn to even greater closeness with him. But in these small acts, these small acts of judgment over and over in Ezekiel, this statement is repeated, then they will know that I am the Lord. We must think rightly. But not only must we think rightly, we must respond rightly to God. So what does that look like? Let me give two points of response here. So here's our second point in it. In calamity, we must dethrone anxiety and enthrone Christ as Lord. Look at, you're in Joel, find verse 21 there for a second. Look at the instructions that God gives. Do not fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beast of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green, for the tree has borne its fruit. The fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God. All right, so here's God's message. But it won't ring as powerful until we picture the circumstances in our, in our minds. Picture the landscape of Israel at this time. The fields were stripped bare. The land is barren. The creeks are dried. The flocks and the herds are dying. Vultures are circling and their income has been reduced to ashes. And God says, do not fear. Rejoice, O sons of Zion. Be glad in the Lord your God. Well, how do we do that? If things are fearful, then how do we not fear? If circumstances are disheartening, then how do we rejoice? He promises them what will be one day. He says, the day will come when your threshing floors are filled again. Your wine vats will overflow. They won't be big enough to handle the excess of what I am going to give you. I will make up for the years of your loss. Verse 26, you will have plenty. You will eat. You will be satisfied. You will praise the name of the Lord your God when you look on the abundance that he has given you. And then you will never again be put to shame. He, he repeated that three times in the passage that we read. You will never again be put to shame. God calls his people to rejoice in what will be later. The promises of God for our future are what give us joy, gladness, and yeah, even downright cheerfulness. Now, the promise that God made to Israel here in Joel chapter two, let me help uh, interpret it here. It had a threefold fulfillment. We got to make sure we know what God's promising and what God's not. First, even on the heels of this catastrophe, God said, I have already begun to send the early rain. He said that in verse 23. So even though there was famine and devastation, God sent rain before the prophet even spoke. So I have already begun to make some provision for the alleviation of your suffering. Secondly, there would be a time in the not so distant future that even on earth, God restored them out of their poverty. That was a very specific promise to them. But third, the ultimate. This passage points where all of God's word points. The ultimate redemption 
that will come in Christ. That is still future tense for you and I, the people of God. So the promises of Joel 2, they do apply to you, but we got to make sure we don't misapply them. God is not promising here that if we'll all just pray enough, that our bank accounts will overflow and the wine vats will be filled and all the viruses will go away. He's not promising that. He's not promising that. The promise is that there is a day that we are still looking forward to, an age to come, a kingdom where we will eat and be satisfied with no more fear, where the wine vats will overflow and the possibility of impoverishment is eradicated, where the curse is lifted, God's people live in joy and never again will we know shame. Three times that is repeated. You will never again be put to shame. As the vats of wine overflow, our joy will overflow in a virus-free land, but it ain't now. Look at Philippians chapter four for just a moment, if you will. Philippians four, and I'm going to give you a list of verses here in just a second. Philippians four, starting in verse four, this is that letter Paul writes from prison and the theme is rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Really? Always? Even in pandemics? Always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. If you particularly are prone to anxiety, if that is one of your temptations, here's a passage to memorize. Memorizing scripture that pertains to our particular temptations and weaknesses is a life-changing practice. But uh, particularly, let me also do this. I want to give you a gift greater than gold. If you are prone to anxiety, or even if you're not, but want a list of verses, let me rattle some off here for your joy. Psalm 46, uh, specifically verses one through three. Though the mountains should slip into the heart of the sea, we will not fear. God is our refuge and strength. Psalm 56, Psalm 112, Isaiah 26, verses three through four, Isaiah 41, 10, 2 Corinthians 1, 9 through 10. 2 Timothy 1, 7. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7. 1 John 4, 18. If you didn't get any of those, I'm happy to repeat them after the uh, time here. But we glorify God. This is, this is very important. We glorify God by living with a peaceful rest in us. Because not only are we directly pleasing him like he is pleased, even if nobody knows that you have a peaceful resting heart, but we glorify him also when we are communicating to the world around us and the angels and the demons. I really trust him. He really does got this. We dishonor God with anxiety because we fail to trust and we communicate. I'm not really sure if I can trust him. 
So, so, so listen, we will glorify God to our kids if we live in joy and show their little hearts, you really can trust him. Uh, Douglas Wilson, uh, his children did an interview not all that long ago where they were uh, describing some things about their father and they all mentioned a, a very significant moment in their childhood. There was a time in their family's upbringing that their house actually burned down and they lost everything. But they said, seeing how their dad responded, that still with gladness and joy in total trust in the Lord, he just communicated to his children, our God loves us and will take care of us. The Lord gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. They said that it gave them a footing when they were in fearful and in danger of wishy-washy floating around into all kinds of anxiety. Their dad gave them a peace by his peace. A third matter for the Christian to live and be faithful. In calamity, we are still the hands and feet of Christ. Here's the fact. There are ministry needs in the midst of turmoil. And Christians are those who run into the flames and not away from them. In Wuhan, China, where it is believed that this virus originated, make no mistake, God in grace gave the church a beautiful gift. The believers there in that place modeled how to respond. They took to the streets, passed out necessities. When everyone else was in fear and being selfish, these believers distributed provisions and gave. They cared, they ministered, they loved, they did not hole up, they went out. There are ministry needs every day. Ministry needs are multiplied when there is tragedy. Let me mention four ways that we can serve. Number one, scripture commands us to help the weak. Your elderly neighbors or those with health conditions are the most at risk and many of them are afraid. You serving them well might mean that you don't go in their house to love your neighbor as yourself, but maybe to call and to give and to vi visit with groceries. Number two, we're commanded to care for our neighbors, even the ones that are not weak. He, we have opportunities in this. You ever look around at your neighbors and think, man, I'd really like to build a relationship, somehow minister to them, but I don't know what to do. Now we know what to do. Here is a chance, a natural opportunity. Let us, the people of God, be known for ministering to others. There's a young girl who is a friend of our family. She's actually from just up the road here. I've mentioned her before, just north of Jasper, the gospel gripped her at a young age, right out of college. She specifically studied languages so that she could go and do missions work. Right out of college, she joined Samaritan's Purse. First mission was to go up and down the Amazon River, bringing medical supplies to tribes in the jungles. Then she moved on to Ebola response teams. I'm not even sure. She's 25 years old, and she is one of the world's leading experts of boots on the ground, how do you lead an Ebola response team? The world owes her gratitude and doesn't even know her. She's been involved in successfully checking more than one Ebola outbreak. I got the chance to have lunch with her dad not all that long ago. And he told me, yeah, in his flesh, he is tempted with fears for her safety because it's not just the virus. It's cannibals and warlords. But I loved, it was so powerful when he said, but I could not be prouder of her. 
She is glorifying God and making her life count. This is what Christians are to be known for. Let us be known as those who give and serve and run into the flames and not away from it. This is an opportunity to make the name of Christ glorious. Number three, love your neighbor as yourself. There are a few truths from the word that have affected the world more profoundly than this single sentence. Love your neighbor as yourself. We are to make it a guiding principle in all things, in marriage, in how we drive, and in pandemic. And so really many of the basic things that we have been communicated to by by the CDC and different things really do boil down to love your neighbor as yourself. Do you want people with a fever to come to your workplace and be around your children? Then let's not do the same. Do you want people to wash their hands after they go to the bathroom? Well, then let's us do the same. Do we want to care for others? Isn't that interesting Deuteronomy 23 that we read? Some awkward stuff in there, okay? But isn't it interesting that God gave provision even in very, what seemingly small things like that? Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you want people to hoard toilet paper? Well, then let's apply the same to our lives. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then the fourth way to minister. What an incredible opportunity for the gospel. What an incredible opportunity for the gospel. As the world panics, scripture responds. You should have been panicking a long time before this. Should people be panicking? Well, you know, we're tempted to say no. The Bible would respond, you should have been panicking a long time before this. Because you walk around every single day in a cursed world with a thousand ways to die. Your feet dangle above the flames of an eternal hell. Your life is held by a thin thread of the pleasure of God. You must be saved. And believers, we must be vocal about this message. We must be vocal about the gospel. What is our message? Well, we saw it here in Joel over and over again, like in verse 12 there. He says, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Listen, they were looking at their crops and their income and they were tearing their clothing. And the response of God is, tear your hearts. Forget about your income. Tear your hearts. Mourn, weep, fast, throw yourself on the floor before the Lord your God. Look at, look at verse 15. Now this is significant. This section that he says here. Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, the nursing infants, leave your honeymoon and come together. Let the priest weep, let them cry out to God. Here's the point. When mankind hears about sin, he often responds, yeah, yeah, I I know, I I should do better. I I should go to church more. Do you see the difference between that and what is said here? Like, take this seriously. Throw yourself on the floor. Weep before the living God. Cry out for him to save you. To sum it up, it is to say repent. But the word repent is actually bigger than what it's normally defined as. To repent is not just to feel bad. That's not repentance. That's called conviction. 
Repentance is yes to have grief over your sin, but it is to then turn to the Lord. It is to bow the knee. It is to turn a submissive, humble heart to the Lord and cry out to him. So how do we respond? We need to think rightly, live rightly, be faithful to our God, minister, love others. Christian, have you been living in a haze just drifting along, your life maybe looks quite a bit like the world except without the obvious stuff. And scripture calls you to repent. Take action. Throw yourself on the ground before the living God and recommit your life to Him. Are you a Christian who is not in a haze? You think it's okay to, to, if you honestly evaluate your life, believe that there's health. Do you believe that's where you are? Then renew, renew your commitment to follow Christ. But then are you someone who has never turned to Christ to be saved, never really responded like this to God? Then I, I beg you to see the living God says you're not okay. The living God says, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Turn to Christ in full trust and submission and cry out to him, pleading with him to save you. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our God, we pray that you will magnify your name in all all that you are doing. And I pray, O oh God, that we will glorify your name. Help us, O oh God. I pray that we will be a, a demonstration, a, a model of, of godliness in these things. Help us as we struggle through our temptations. Give us wisdom as a church, O oh Lord, as there are a lot of decisions that need to be made in this season. I beg that you give us wisdom. I beg that you lead us to what is right. Help us, O oh God. We love you and pray these things through Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.